Welcome to Trendsetters, the latest season of the podcast Long Story Short. I'm Peter Van Doywert, and this series is all about demystifying the world of quantitative trend-following strategies, how they work, why they work, and where they might fit in your portfolio. I am excited for this episode to be joined by Juliana Bordigoni, who is Director of Specialist Strategies at Men AHL. It is great to have you here. Good morning. I'm excited too. I'm excited because so far with Otto and Russell, we've talked a lot about trend following strategies, but mostly in traditional markets, you know, futures and equities and bonds and such. But you do something quite a bit different. So, you know, I thought we'd just jump into it. Some people call it specialists, others say alt markets, non-traditional, there's all kinds of different expressions, but what is it exactly? Yeah, so I think that you have to go back to the history of CTAs. So CTA started, uh, and Russell might have told you, in the early 90s, and they were trading uh, uh, future and forward. So we are talking about the most liquid future and forward markets. Uh, when we talk about alternative market, effectively we talk about uh, uh, the space of market that are not the liquid uh, future and forward, uh, where that they were the traditional space of the CTAs. I like to call them alternative markets, but specialist market, it doesn't matter. So it is quite a wide range of market. And I would include in this wide range of market, even the future, which are less liquid and maybe less uh, uh, traded uh, historically. So when you say less liquid, does that mean illiquid? No, not at all. Uh, we don't trade anything which is illiquid at the moment, especially in trend following. Uh, when I mean uh, less liquid, I mean that uh, uh, maybe the size of the market is not as big, but any of the market we trade needs to be able, we need to be able to trade it on a daily basis. So uh, more than the size, what we worry is a consistent volume day, on, uh, day after day. Uh, the size, you can always uh, account for it when uh, uh, you do the allocation. So the smaller the market, the smaller the allocation, but uh, what you really need to be able, you need to be able to trade it on a daily basis. And when we say small, does that mean like millions of dollars a day or? Yeah, it tends to be millions. So even the smallest tends to, to have an average daily volume north of millions of, day, uh, millions of dollars a day. And so I guess it's safe to say that there are some markets that people probably haven't even heard of that you're playing, uh, invested in. Yeah, I, I would say I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess the numbers are as high as 400 markets, is that right? The number is huge. Uh, and uh, it comes from the fact that uh, we have been trading, we have been doing this for many years. So we, I would say that probably we start looking into the space of alternative markets around 2005, 2006. And uh, since then, we have been fairly active. And this sort of goes back to our philosophy. So momentum, and Russell, again, might have told you, uh, is uh, uh, a relatively weak effect. And in order to really capitalize on it, you need to um, use diversification. So offer the widest range of uh, uh, markets possible, but mostly like uh, of different drivers. And that's where uh, uh, we start looking at an alternative markets. We wanted to complement what we, could, we were already doing in future and forward, by different drivers. Give you an example. We were trading in fixed income. If you look at the traditional space, what you trade, you trade uh, bond futures. And bond futures, where do you trade them? You trade them in developed market mostly, right? When you look uh, into alternative markets, what you trade, you trade emerging market swaps. 
uh, and that opens up like a, mu a much bigger uh, range of countries that you were not to to able you were not able to access when you were looking just at futures. Interesting. So I might come back to that in a second, but I guess another question I'd have is, do you have to adjust the models for all of these different markets? Well, we don't. So what I mean is that, uh, and let me specify what, um, let me say a little bit more uh, on this. So uh, we have our core momentum models and the aim of these core momentum models is to capture trends wherever they appear in whatever markets. So the signals that we use are the same in uh, alternative market space and in the traditional space. What can differ is the speed of trading. Uh, in general, that is true also if you, stay, if you stick to futures. In general, we trade more expensive markets, uh, slower than we trade cheaper markets. But again, there are other variables. Take it like a sort of a, um, average uh, statement. Um, and that's so there's the same in alternative markets. It might be that some of the markets in alternative market space are more expensive than the one in the traditional, so we might trade them slower, but the actual set of signal is the same in both worlds. Interesting. So by expensive, do you mean from a transaction cost standpoint? Correct. Not I, necessarily I valuation standpoint. Oh, no, 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 absolutely not. I, I'm, I'm talking about transaction cost. And this sort of goes also back to the point that we believe in diversification. So we believe in really uh, innovate by um, adding markets, by adding drivers, more than actually fiddle with existing models that they capture perfectly trend anyway. So I guess somewhat akin to that, I wonder why you know alternative market trend isn't more widely adopted. You know why can't I? I asked Russell the same question on you know traditional markets. You know why can't I just fire up my laptop, pick seven or eight kind of cool markets and have at it? You know are there barriers to entry? You know that sort of thing. I would say that there are more barriers to entry in this space, uh, and you can think of barriers to entries like legal documents, uh, execution, size of the trade. Uh, so the, the transact there are some fixed fees that depend on the size of what you trade. So obviously, uh, if you do it at home, you might do a smaller trade and it might not be optimal from that point of view. Um, and, uh, um, and the legal documents. So you want, so what you want to do, you want to have like a wide set of brokers and counterparties that you trade with. And in order to be able to trade with them, you need some legal documents. So you need to have like um, a legal department that they can process this document. You need to have an execution that is uh, uh, specialized in trading the different uh, markets. And you need a back office that then they can affirm uh, trades once they have happened. So it is quite a large infrastructure that you need in order to be able to make the trade. Yeah, I guess... Along those lines, you know, execution costs probably matters. And I think you've written papers on the topic, basically, given what, what you're up to. Maybe tell us a bit more about all the things that a manager can do in terms of improving execution and maybe make my laptop and I redundant. So uh, I think that uh, the first thing to observe is that uh, the more broker you have, well, uh, up to a certain point, the more broker you have, the... Um, uh, the, uh, the tighter uh, tends to be the uh, spread, the inside spread that you see in the market. 
So that is the first observation. And that's why it goes back to the point before that the more relationship you have, the more you can leverage uh, on this. Um, the uh, paper you mentioned, it's about the fact that uh, most, of, most, most of the academic literature thinks of a trade like something that uh, you decide, you make a trade and that's it. So it's like one isolated uh, thing. While what we try to do in, in, the, in, the, in the paper, we try to look at uh, two, uh, trade, at least two trades. So meaning most of the people, what they will do, they will have uh, some, they will sample the price in the morning, generate a trade, and then they will resample uh, sometimes afterwards. But it's not that they won't trade for the rest of the day, right? They will get in new information and they will base the next trade on the new information that come in. So the, the paper, uh, tries to address the problem of what is uh, the optimal uh, uh, trajectory, uh, meaning like the, of your trades, if you are going to trade after you have done the first trade. That's, that's pretty interesting. I imagine too, there's a reasonable amount of turnover in the portfolio every year. Uh, yeah, there is. And that, uh, uh, so again, uh, it depends obviously on the markets that we trade. We already talked about that some, more, some markets are more expensive, some are cheaper. I would say that our uh, overage holding period varies between uh, a month and a half uh, to uh, three, four months uh, according to the market. But still, uh, that, that depends also on the market volatility and it depends on... Uh, uh, it depends on your on your signal. So how, how strong is the trend in a market? Uh, are you going to see reversal? Is it going to go the other way? I'm also getting a sense just hearing about some of the instruments you trade that a fair bit of it might be over the counter markets. Does that mean you have counterparty risk and, and how should one think about that? Uh, yes, uh, loads of them are uh, OTC markets. Um, I would say that uh, in the last few years, we have seen uh, more OTC markets becoming uh, uh, clearable. So, and wherever we can clear, we tend to clear, which means that your exposure is uh, against the clearing house. So uh, the counterparty risk is effectively the same as, uh, as when you trade with the future, right? Uh, but this is uh, th this doesn't mean that all the markets that are in alternative market space are clearable. So in the one that they are uh, bilateral, uh, then you do have uh, a counterparty risk. And we try to manage it uh, by monitoring the, counterparty, the, the counterparties where we uh, have exposure with. We have, uh, as everything in HL world is all systematic, so we have uh, um, measures that we apply to the counterparty as well to assess the risk. Yeah, and I guess that's an interesting part of the alpha conversation, not to belittle my laptop more, but the fact that they're just markets we can't access through what we think are the easiest ways to trade and, and just the operational lift does seem severe. So in any event, so we've talked a bit about, I guess, the operational side. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about a fun side. Um, you know, maybe tell us a bit about China. I know you've said before how, you know, there's a Chinese eggs market and the apples market, and these are unique out in, in that outside of China, they don't exist, or if they did exist in such trivial form, it's me at Waitrose buying eggs. Yeah, so um, we did uh, discuss a little bit earlier that all the markets we trade uh, are, uh, they might be small, but they, are, but they can trade every day. When you look at China, the appeal is that these markets are deep. 
So um, in terms of the, the size of the market, they are, they are big markets. And in terms of what they are, many of them are unique. So you made the example of eggs and apples, but there are plenty more. Another big area that um, of futures, actually, they are all uh, futures. Here we are talking about uh, uh, futures which are listed on the main uh, Chinese exchanges. And what you find, for example, you find a lot of industrials. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to find liquid markets which, uh, um, which represent the segment uh, of the economy in outside China. You find couple, but uh, they are not very liquid, and some you don't find them at all. For example, I'll give you an example of industrials, you can think of it like glass. You can't trade glass outside China, at least at the best of my knowledge. So we've talked about a couple unusual markets in China, but also beyond traditional trend strategies. I noticed that CDS, you know, credit indices are traded a fair bit in alternative trend following uh, strategies as well. Can you talk a bit about that, the liquidity profile? Because I think some investors might think, is that really liquid enough? Even though we've just talked about Chinese eggs, they'll still think that. <laughs> so uh, I think that uh, when you uh, go into the credit space, you need to distinguish uh, which markets. So if we think about indices, indices are probably the largest markets that we trade in the uh, alternative space. Uh, here I'm talking about CDX, IG, uh, or I'm talking about ITRAX main and so on. Uh, and it's all corporate credit. Uh, in credit space, you can also trade a single name uh, in terms of sovereign or like corporate single name. And that is uh, definitely a much smaller space. I would say that among the two, the uh, corporate single name is the one that is more challenging from an execution point of view. Uh, and uh, I would say that uh, it is a little bit of the cutting edge or what, uh, or at the limit of what you do in, uh, in trend following. I'm just curious, why do you think these markets have developed there? And I mean, you know, we're supposed to be the forefront of finance, you know, in the US and, and the UK. Why there? Uh, I think it's because of the economy. So I think that uh, if you look at uh, what are these markets, they are markets uh, China uh, is reliant on in their economy. So uh, what I mean is that there is loads of manufacturing in, in Chinese economy, there is loads of building in China, in, in China, and these are the markets that are necessary for, uh, uh, for their economy. Uh, that's why I think that they develop there. Okay, so moving on then, I guess performance of alternative market trend followers has been a lot more consistent than some of the traditional CTAs. And by that, I sort of mean the period from, say, 2010 through 17. It seems like there's maybe maybe a bit more alpha, a bit more return. Am I imagining that? Is that the case? Historically, it has been the case. Uh, and... Uh, um... We, our philosophy is, uh, however, that we believe that trends appear in different markets at different time, and the best we can do is to um, offer any drivers, as I said earlier. But historically, you have seen that uh, um, markets in the uh, alternative space have trended better. Um, in terms of, uh, if you look at... Uh, one possible reason is that when you look at the average pairwise correlations of the markets in the alternative space, they tend to be a bit lower. 
and uh, then in the traditional space. So um, maybe it is a space that is internally is a little bit more diversified, uh, but there is also the fact that the markets historically have shown a uh, better trends. But again, I'm talking about historically and I would really stress that. You know, we spoke a bit with Russell and Otto about the Fed put, and, and so the Fed put is gone now, <laughs> and we see trend strategies making it in all forms and all flavors. But going back to that same period, 2010 to say 17-ish, you know, there seems to have been a Fed put, you know, dampening a lot of different markets. You know, is the implication that some of your markets weren't impacted by that, if, if we believe that to be true? Maybe you don't believe it, I don't know. No, 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 I do believe that. I do believe that... Uh, um... Uh, so, where uh, um, the markets most uh, impacted in that period were the markets that are, so we can call it a, like macro driver, right? It's like sort of macro markets. And I think that uh, there are some uh, macro markets in, uh, uh, the, um, in the alternative space, but there are also loads of them which are more idiosyncratic and uh, that they are not affected by, uh, by the Fed. So uh, that for sure uh, has been one of the reasons uh, probably we have seen more internal diversification and probably we've seen better performance. So going on to the topic of diversification, you know, every you know, conversation we've had so far has included inflation. So you're going to get inflation as well. So, All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, every investor cares about it. We've seen, obviously, traditional trend do well. You know, how, how about alternative trend? Is it benefiting, suffering? How is it going? In, uh, in terms of inflation, uh, what we see, what we see, we see that uh, trend in traditional space do well um, because uh, uh, there is a bit of underreaction to like uh, inflation. It, it takes time and therefore, and therefore trend develops. And the markets that they do well in this uh, scenario tends to be commodities and they tend to be uh, fixed income on opposite side, we can be going up, fixing and going down, but that's what is uh, sort of uh, the story. And uh, uh, at an extent, uh, this is also uh, the case for uh, some of the alternative markets. And I will go back to the previous question. So the ones that are uh, driven from some of the macro driver, for sure will see the same. Some will be a bit more idiosyncratic, so you will see less of that. And I, I guess you've kind of answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, Otto spends a lot of time talking about the best strategies for the worst crises, the best strategies for inflationary times. Um, you know, crisis alpha is on people's minds. So kind of the same question, maybe the same answer. You know, do alt markets show crisis alpha um, in the same way they've shown it with inflation times? When we think about crisis alpha, we always think about an equity sell-off. Um, and uh, uh, I would say that in the alternative space, there might be less markets that they are uh, uh, influenced uh, by an equity sell-off. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, you might argue that the idiosyncratic component is uh, a bit more prevalent and therefore they have a little less crisis alpha than the traditional space. But uh, for the markets that they are, uh, let's say, more influenced in this, the, 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 by the equity, uh, by an equity sell-off, you will see similar properties. And, and so I guess in that vein, probably very few of our investors have a lot of eggs in China. 
but they have pretty traditional assets. So does it make sense to say, maybe take some of the alpha of the alt market strategies and put it alongside more traditional trend as a more direct you know, risk control? Absolutely. Uh, we go back to the diversification. Having a traditional market and alternative markets together increase your diversification. So as I said earlier, we believe that trends appear uh, in uh, um, different markets at different times, which means that the more diversify your portfolio, in theory, the, more, the better you can capture and the trends wherever they appear. In terms of innovation, you mentioned a bit, you know, with respect to getting something like EM swaps into the portfolio. We've talked a bit about, you know, the, the Fed put and, you know, how strategies are outside of that to a degree. So what role does innovation play in, in, in kind of what you're putting together and maybe looking forward? So uh, innovation uh, comes uh, from uh, being at the cutting edge of what you can trade. Obviously, there is a limit to that. That is, uh, we need to be able to trade on a daily basis, as I said earlier. But there are loads of markets that they become more liquid through time. There are uh, uh, regulations that are changing and that means that you might be able to access uh, uh, some markets that you were not to, um, that you were not able to access uh, five years ago. So innovation comes really from uh, uh, keeping uh, up with the liquidity in many markets, even in the one that you don't trade, and add them as soon as they become viable. I guess I have to ask because everyone has spent a lot of time talking about crypto this year. It's a trivial part of global assets under management, but it seems to get an outsized amount of attention. So I'm going to ask, what about crypto? Yeah, it definitely receives an outsized amount of attention. I agree on that. For me, crypto is another driver. Uh, if you think about trend following, obviously you can do more quant strategy uh, in crypto. Here we are discussing trend following. And for me, in trend following, crypto are simply another driver. So it makes lots of sense to me adding them uh, into uh, a trend-following uh, offering. And so maybe to wrap it up, looking ahead, you know, what do you see as the future for alternative momentum? You know, new markets. You know, is it about data? Is it about well, how are the opportunities forming? Like, what does it look like for the next few years to you? Yeah. So I, uh, where I see the future, I see it in new markets. So alternative. If we talk about momentum. We will be adding uh, uh, new markets, as I said earlier, they some will become more liquid, regulation will change, we will be able to access some, uh, some more. But I also see um, the future in quant strategy in general in this space, because at the moment what we see in this space, from a systematic point of view, we see a lot of momentum. We don't see much of uh, uh, um, no moment like uh, quant strategies if you exclude cash equities right so i do see more going into the quant space on the quant strategy in this alternative market space that's great well thank you for joining us um it's been, thank you it's definitely been informative for me thank you very much